Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I am Steve Newborn. Growth is no stranger to Florida. We've been a magnet for migrants, immigrants, and sun seekers ever since Ponce de Leon happened upon our shores some 500 odd years ago. But will too much growth crowd out what people came here for to begin with? Here in the Donna studio is internationally renowned nature photographer Carlton Ward Jr. He's an eighth generation Floridian. Now, how many of us can say that? and a founder of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition. They've mounted several treks through the state to publicize the need to preserve corridors for wildlife before they're developed forever. Also with us in the studio is Paul Owens, president of the environmental group 1000 Friends of Florida. We tried several times to get officials with development companies on this show to no avail. Paul, let's start with you. 1000 Friends has put out first its Florida in 2060, and now it's Florida in 2070 outlooks. And it looks like the state is basically going to double in population. So uh, we're clearly at a tipping point here. We are. Uh, we have so many people coming that if we don't manage the growth properly to find places for all those folks to live, We uh, put at risk what makes Florida special and what's drawn so many people here and so many uh, tourists here for so long, our environment and our quality of life. Now, I wanted to point out a map here that I have in my hands, and you could find this on our website, WUSFnews.org. It basically is an outlook of the state in 50 years. The, The green areas are areas that are preserved, and then you have these red splotches all over the place that represent uh, developed areas. Now, the worst-case scenario in 50 years, it looks like half the state is going to be paved over. Is that a realistic expectation of what the state can look like? Actually, for the entire state, it's more like a third of the state would be paved over. But uh, in central Florida, where we are now, central Florida being basically the I-4 corridor, Tampa to Orlando to Daytona, it is pretty close to half that area being paved over. The current population in that area is about 7 million. And in the next half century, the population is projected to grow to 16 million in that part of the state. So in other words, more than doubling. This population growth is based on uh, a projection from one of our partners on the 2070 report, the University of Florida's Geo Plan Center. So it's a pretty uh, credible projection. You're looking at doubling the population in Central Florida to a point where basically the entire population we had here maybe in 2010 is concentrated just in the I-4 corridor, right? That's basically right. All right. So what does that mean for our natural resources or water in particular? Everybody's talking about water now. How much of a stress does that put on our water resources? That could essentially double uh, the development-related demand on the water supply. 
and you know in the Tampa area that the water supply has already been an issue for a long time. So that's just simply not sustainable, that kind of pressure on the water supply over the coming decades. Now I wanted to focus on a couple of areas here. One of them is the Four Corners area, where Orange, Osceola, Polk, and Lake Counties meet, right at the center of the state. It's home to I-4, where uncounted numbers of cars go every day, and also Walt Disney World, which is the busiest theme park on the entire planet. Now, Carlton and the Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition shows this for a mini track back in April. Carlton, tell us the reason why you focused on this particular area. If anyone followed our past expeditions, we really focused on the biggest, most robust landscape connections we could still protect. We were looking at millions of contiguous acres in the Everglades and the Florida Panhandle, and we felt that those journeys didn't clearly focus on the threat or the challenge that we face in Florida. So by choosing the route of this expedition, beginning in the headwaters of the Everglades near Kissimmee and working our way towards the Green Swamp, which is the great water tower for the Tampa Bay area, we had to navigate one of the most fragile and threatened parts of the statewide Florida Wildlife Corridor Network. And in moments, we were places where the corridor was less than a quarter mile wide. And I think those linkages are still important and worth fighting for, but it's a, it's a foreshadowing of the type of fragmentation and development and conservation conflict we'll face throughout the rest of the state, whether it's further down at State Road 60, at State Road 70. We could end up building a series of impenetrable concrete or development barriers that will have really um, challenging consequences for wildlife and water and for people. And what this could basically do is leave the Everglades as kind of a biological island. That's exactly right. The Everglades watershed is from Orlando south, the entire southern half of our peninsula. And the way the I-4 corridor is developing between Tampa and Orlando in particular, the Everglades system could be permanently cut off from the rest of Florida and from the rest of our continent. That's a big deal for a number of reasons. This watershed supplies drinking water currently for nearly 10 million people. With the projections coming, that'll be 15 or 20 million people into the future. So I teamed up with the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting for a story on the Four Corners area. You can also find that on our website at wusfnews.org. And I looked at the aerial photos of the area back in the 50s, and there's nothing there. I mean, it's amazing. No I-4, no Disney theme parks, no nothing. And what it is today is just like night and day. And part of the, uh, the reason for the sprawl in this area is because it's called the Four Corners. It's at the four corners of four counties where the county seats are far away. In Polk County's case, it's 40 miles away down in Bartow. So you have no connection between what happens in one county and another, even though you're driving down the street and you could be in Polk County and then you're in Osceola across the street. So, Paul, is this a problem we're seeing a lot in the state, or what can really be done to coordinate growth so that what happens in one county doesn't adversely impact another county? Yeah, and it is a problem, and we used to have uh, provisions to try to avoid that problem. We had a Growth Management Act that the legislature passed in 1985 that was considered a model piece of legislation that required state and regional oversight 
for development plans that would, in their impact, extend beyond a single city or a single county. And so you had much more attention being paid to that and much more uh, coordination required among counties than you have now. In 2011, the legislature scaled the 85 Growth Management Act way back. And as a result, there is far less a fraction of the oversight at the regional and the state level than there used to be. You're referring to the DRIs, the Developments of Regional Impact? That's correct, yes. In the last eight years, there are major developments that have gone up all over Florida that prior to that 2011 Community Planning Act would have required regional oversight and cooperation and additional state oversight, and that has gone away. So there's a much greater risk now that uh, one city or one county's approval of a major development is going to have an impact on a neighboring municipality or county that didn't even have a seat at the table when the development was being considered. Now, the growth in the Four Corners area has gotten so rampant that developers in the counties themselves took the initiative to meet over Halloween to come up with a plan. They call it the One Vision Plan. And they invited all the representatives, the planners from the four counties. Is, is, is that considered pretty much of a, um, a fluke to have the developers, you know, come together like that on their own without some kind of overarching government agency pushing them together? Yeah, I think that's the exception rather than the rule. I happen to think that it's smart business for developers to do that because over time, if they don't pay attention to the negative impacts of their developments and neighboring developments, it's going to degrade the quality of life to the point where nobody's going to want to buy homes in their developments. The traffic is going to be so bad. The runoff into local waterways is going to pollute local waterways to the point where that creates problems. So it makes those sorts of initiatives make sense. But if they're purely voluntary, you certainly can't count on them. So we're at the risk of really killing the goose that laid the golden egg here, so to speak. If, if we don't get a handle on this, many people say uh, the rampant growth is going to impact what the state looks like, and tourists, maybe they won't want to come here anymore if the state doesn't look like it does now. Managing growth is not just an environmental issue. It's an economic issue because for precisely the reason you articulated, people aren't going to want to live here High-wage quality employers aren't going to want to locate here, and the tourists who are responsible for so much of the economic activity in our state will stop coming here. Do you think government officials are noticing that now? Do you think that's finally filtering through to Tallahassee? I think the water quality problems, uh, the crisis that we've endured for the last year has been a real wake-up call because there's a direct connection between water quality problems and a failure to manage growth. When you don't manage growth properly, you have a greater problem with runoff. Runoff pollutes waterways and and fuels algae blooms. So I I think it really was a wake-up call. As someone who spends a lot of time in the swamps in wild Florida, I can say firsthand that all of Florida is a wetland at different times of the year. And 
where we can get a lot of the best synergy and, the, and make the best progress in improving our water systems is protecting the land that is the headwaters to these systems. When it comes to the Everglades, when it comes to the St. John's, when it comes to the Suwannee, these headwaters are the lands that in one of Paul's maps are potentially green and protected, and in the other map, they're red and developed. And so to really get ahead of the water problems, we need to be looking at the green infrastructure, which is the solution for both land and water in our state. And that can't happen just through oversight alone. It takes investment. Just like we spend $10 billion every single year on our state's road budget, I think we need to be spending a minimum of $500 million a year to invest in conservation easements with willing landowners and in strategic land acquisitions through programs like Florida Forever. So, so conservation easements are where we basically pay the landowner to not develop their land, right? Yes. A conservation easement is a tool that buys the development rights away from a landowner. You know, Florida has a, a great conservation legacy. We have about 9 million acres of our state that are in permanent protection status. We have a similar amount of acres that are in agriculture. And the future of Florida and the future of our green space is going to depend on what happens with those agricultural lands. If they all transition to intensive land use and development or if they stay in agriculture, that's two drastically different pictures. So you can actually make the statement that we will lose agriculture in Florida as well if we don't invest in protecting this green infrastructure. Paul, do we see a buy-in from agricultural interests on this? Or do they, are they actively lobbying the state to find some way for them to preserve their lands? I think there's a lot of interest in the agricultural community to maintain their operations and to maintain their way of life and their culture. But there's also a lot of economic pressure on them. You know, we've had some real calamitous weather the last few years that has put a lot of stress on the agricultural community. So I I think there needs to be adequate funding for these conservation easements to make it worth their while, to make it in their economic interest to stay in farming. For a species like the Florida panther, for example, there will be no recovery from endangered status without the permanent protection of farms and ranches and timberlands that make up vital linkages and, and core habitat. And so that is front and center in terms of a solution to help save the land and the water is help these landowners find alternative futures that give them choices not to sell out to full development. Now, Carlton, you've been down in the Everglades now for how long studying the Panthers? It's been about three years. Right. So you've got an intimate look at the effect that growth has on these creatures' ability to spread beyond where they're at right now, right? Yes, I'm, I've in the past focused on black bears and, and now I'm Florida panthers because these are some of Florida's widest ranging land animals. And the breeding population of the Florida panther, where the known females are located, is basically isolated to the southern tip of Florida. For the, for the panther to ever recover from its endangered status, there needs to be three times as many panthers spread across three times as much land, which would include the northern Everglades. It would also include the northern parts of the corridor through the por- Florida Panhandle and beyond. A male Florida panther has a home range of 200 square miles, a female Florida panther up to 80 square miles. That's a huge amount of land it takes just to support one panther. And with the exception of a big national preserve like Big Cypress or portions of the Everglades, there are very few 
public conservation lands in our state that contain the home range of a single Florida panther. So really, the panther is a great ambassador to show us that we need to look beyond the jurisdictions of the state park or the national preserve or the state forest or the cattle ranch or the orange grove, but looking at it as a connected whole, because that's what it's going to take for the Florida panther to ever recover from being endangered. Well, the future is is still in doubt, as you know. Uh, one of the proposals that has come up recently in Collier County is to develop 45,000 acres of woodland and pasture for several master planned communities, and in particular, roadways connecting them. Carl, do you believe that these cities, A, have a chance of becoming reality, and B, what is the effect going to be on, on the Panther? Well, the case you mentioned is complicated because it has a, a long history, and there's 90,000 acres of permanent conservation easement that are already associated with some of the core developments around Ave Maria, if, if we're talking around, about Collier County and their habitat conservation plan. That's so, the planned city by Tom Monahan. You know, what's, what's good about a plan like that is they are at least thinking big and making a plan. I don't know all the details of that plan. I'm sure there's room for improvement. But what we want to avoid throughout Florida is the haphazard opportunistic development that quietly gobbles up 10, 50, 100, 200 acres at a time according to no large-scale plan because that doesn't leave any room for large-scale conservation either. It almost seems like I'm hearing that you think that these master plan communities may be better than the alternative, the willy-nilly smaller developments? I will say from what I've seen, there are examples of places like Babcock Ranch where 100,000 acres of land was on the table for development. The resulting development is now concentrated on 17,000 acres or fewer in one corner, and 80% of that land is in public ownership for permanent protection. In fact, the first documented female Florida panther north of the Clusahatchee River in nearly 50 years is at the protected part of Babcock Ranch. And so had that ranch gone down a typical development model where it all got auctioned for competing interest, there would arguably be no place for that very historic female panther. The point I'll make about that development, it didn't happen by the development interest alone. It was the development and conservation interest coming together, and it was a commitment and an investment by the state of Florida to the tune of $300 million under Governor Jeb Bush that allowed that math to work. It allowed that developer to have higher density and make a profitable, more sensible development and have very large-scale and regionally significant conservation hand-in-hand. All right. Uh, in in defense of the plans in Collier County in particular, the landowners are saying they're going to preserve over 100,000 acres as habitat for the panther and other threatened and endangered species. But for the panther, maybe what goes hand in hand is not so much the wildlife habitat degradation, but the roadways going between these developments, right, that is deadly for these animals. Mortality on roads is the number one cause of death for the Florida panther. So it's no doubt the road and the increased congestion and traffic that goes along those roads. The road creates some problems, a lot of those we can mitigate for with wildlife underpasses and cross fencing, but it's the associated development. It's the sprawling and stretching of our cities and our suburban areas. It is really to the great detriment of the wildlife. Paul Owens, your, your map from 1,000 Friends of Florida, your, your 2070 plan, has several scenarios that the state could look at. Uh, describe them as kind of the best case and the worst case scenarios. Okay, the worst case scenarios, the one that we briefly discussed where development continues for the next 50 years 
at basically its current density, which is really an, an unsustainable, environmentally unsustainable trajectory. And there is no effort to protect additional land from development. The better scenario is for higher density development in urban areas, about 20% higher were the numbers that the University of Florida Geoplan Center ran for us. And the kind of aggressive effort that Carleton has been talking about to protect as much environmentally valuable land and agricultural land as possible from development. If you do that, you can save literally millions of acres. Uh, You'll have beneficial impacts for wildlife, obviously, but also for uh, our water supply, public health, for recreation, and for the continued viability of our tourist economy here in Florida. Now, uh, some of the scenarios that you described, uh, the smart growth includes things like urban infill, filling in places that are kind of marginal, and building up instead of building out. That's correct, although there should be limits depending on communities, traditions. Good example, Martin County has had a a long-standing limit there of four stories. Martin County, when you drive from Palm Beach County into Martin County, if you've ever made that drive, it's striking. You notice the difference right away. Traditions like that should not necessarily fall prey to a unrestrained push for urban infill development. I think there is a balance that you can strike in most communities. In most communities, there is room for significantly more density without threatening things like like Martin County's four-story height limit or without threatening urban parks, for example, or historic homes. There's a way to do this right. It takes planning. I think it's really interesting, the statistic that you brought up, that we only need to increase that urban density by 20% to really have a big difference. So that's not really that drastic of a measure. I drive back and forth from Naples to Tampa quite often, and the development is pushing east of the interstate. But I know there's lots of land west of the interstate, closer to places like Bradenton and Sarasota, that are still better candidates from development um, from that standpoint. And one one other point I wanted to make, Steve, is it's actually possible through well-planned urban infill development to actually enhance the quality of life, to uh, provide more transportation options for folks if you get a higher density opportunities for people to get out of their cars and get into public transportation that's that's more convenient and you have the critical mass of density to make it convenient. There's also, if you plan it properly, the opportunity to have more affordable workforce housing, which is a huge problem in communities across Florida. Now, in order for all this to happen, you have to have public buy-in, right? Do, do you think the public at large would support this? I mean, maybe having a high-rise down the street where there's a one-story house? I mean, do you think you're going to get public buy-in for all this? I think you need public buy-in. I think you need some requirements, some standards, because developers are going to be inclined to do whatever makes them the most money. I mean, they're, they're business people. I think it takes a public education process I think the more we can bring the developers and the conservationists into these conversations, 
the better. Because these challenges of not having adequate public investment for land protection are not just to the detriment of the environmentalists and the people who are trying to save working in agricultural lands, but it also challenges the developers. I have a cousin who works with fairly large-scale development in the Tampa Bay area, and he is often challenged to make the numbers work on a single property. If you could have some conservation funding that could allow a more robust wildlife corridor, for example, protecting the entire one-half and giving them higher density on the other half, that could really be a solution that helps the development interest and the conservation interest. Uh, the new Senate President, Bill Galvano of Bradenton, wants to expand two, actually wants to expand an existing toll road and build a new one into pretty much virgin territory. One would expand the Suncoast Parkway, which goes from Tampa to Citrus County, all the way up to the Georgia state line. And the other is a revival of what was called the Heartland Parkway, Mm. going from Polk County southwest into Collier, I believe, maybe through the Panther Territory. He contends this would open up economic opportunity to rural lands that are lacking it right now. Others uh, contend it could be a sprawlway for unlimited growth. What's your, what's your comments on that? Well, I would say that highways demonstrably are, are growth and development engines, and so they have to be very carefully located. And areas that are environmentally uh, sensitive or fragile should be the last places where highways are located. Highways, really, the, the environmental impact has to be the first consideration for new highways like that. I know the Heartland Expressway proposal was also a big motivation in the Florida Wildlife Corridor campaign. If we can get the wildlife corridors and the large landscape linkages into those top-level conversations, I think that's a really important step. And I think the Department of Transportation is doing a better job on that. Steve, there is a uh, highway in the Orlando area where I live called the Wakiva Parkway that was planned and designed with environmental advocates right at the front end of the process. And the highway that they came up with has elevated portions and it also has limited access to limit the negative environmental impact on the Wakaiva River Basin. That's the way to plan a highway. And also uh, I-4 between Daytona and Orlando has wildlife underpasses that have been built when they expanded it? That, that's exactly right. With proper planning, when they took interstate from four lanes to six lanes, they put in at least three functional wildlife underpasses. One point I'll make, though, is that those wildlife underpasses connect between existing public conservation lands. As much as we've done to screw up Florida, we still live in an amazing state, and there's uh, amazing wildlife here and amazing uh, plant life and waterways. It's really our greatest asset, and we need to do whatever we can to make sure we don't lose it. All right, that's it for today's show. I'd like to thank my guests, Paul Owens, president of the environmental group 1000 Friends of Florida, and nature photographer and explorer Carlton Ward Jr. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. And another reminder that you can find the maps from 1000 Friends of Florida's 2070 study on our website at WUSFnews.org. And Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. It's another great way to listen whenever it's convenient for you. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Stephanie Colombini. Our engineer is George Govan. 
Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. I'm Steve Newborn. Thanks for listening.